Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retainer and I am broadcasting from here in the Hamptons, a place I have lived for over 50 years. I've written 12 books about this place and I've seen it grow through the years from small fishing villages to what it is today, a summer paradise for New Yorkers, artists, writers, musicians, movie stars, we have it all. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with the Hamptons' powerful people, but I will also introduce you to residents who contributed to our growth through the years, and you may not even have heard about them. My guest today on the podcast is Chuck Scarborough, a longtime news anchor for WNBC in New York. He's one of the most prominently and well-known newsmen we've ever had and has been the newsman for NBC now for 34 years, which brings him online here for us in 1974. Actually, 30, 36 years. That's I've been with, them, with WNBC or NBC4 for 46 years. Quite a stretch. He's on every weekday night at 6 p.m., and now he's on uh, Dan Retiner's podcast. So we'll talk a little bit about this. I saw in the bio that you sent that you are a pilot and were in the military, in the Air Force, during the, I guess, in the, in the early 70s. Was that it? Were you, were you stationed abroad? No, uh, I spent my entire Air Force career at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, and that was in the early 60s. I had an unusual aptitude, it turns out, for, for science and math and, and had an ambition at the time to be an electronics engineer, Dan, and so I, I ended up getting tapped by the Air Force to be one of the first five U.S. Air Force personnel to train on our very first ICBM. I was my specialty was intercontinental ballistic missiles, so I, I trained on the SM-65D. How do you train on one of those without actually setting it off? Well, you can't do that. You got, you know, it's uh, there, there were lots of safeguards, Dan, for that. Thank goodness there were, because for a time there in the sixties, we were on a bit of a hair trigger. It's just a good thing that both sides had enough common sense to, to not unleash what would have been Armageddon. I don't know if you know this, but we had a dozen atlases at the West Hampton Air Force Base in uh, just north of the town there. And they were ready to go uh, when uh, that radar tower out in Montauk gave the go-ahead. They were, yeah. I think they were mainly defensive weapons there. Most of our ICBMs were clustered uh, at that time out in the sparsely populated areas of the, the West and uh, upper Western states. Uh, they were in silos, uh, supposedly hardened against retaliatory attack, but they, that wouldn't have worked. Well, on the other hand, there is a, a story that recently came to light that you did uh, that about uh, another pilot who happens to be your Uncle Al. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I actually... Two of my favorite stories, and there are, there are many, two of them involve family members, which is <laughs> a little egocentric, I guess, Dan, but, but they're, they're wonderful stories. And uh, one of them was my dad, and the other was Uncle Al. The Uncle Al story began when I decided in 2002, as the, the global war on terror was expanding, there was a, an uncovered front of the global war on terror in the Philippines. There was a, an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group called the Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines. They operated out of uh, Mindanao in the southern Philippines, specifically around Zamboanga City and Basilan Island. And we had 500 special forces operatives working with the Filipino military, tracking down, hunting down the Abu Sayyaf. 
Uh, that group, incidentally, was the group responsible for bombing the World Trade Center in 1993. Wow. That was the, uh, the first hint we had that Al-Qaeda had an interest in attacking us on the homeland. Yep. I don't think we were fully aware of it at the time. But I went there and spent uh, a week in the field, uh, did a series of, of, I thought, very interesting reports, um, typical military reports uh, that about the U.S. effort in the Philippines against the terror networks. But on my way out of the Philippines, um, I had to stop in Manila, and I thought I'd check on something there. Uncle Al married my mother's sister, Albion Fernando Summer, from a little town in Pilahatchee, Mississippi. He was a dive bomber pilot in the Second World War. He was in the first attack on the Japanese fleet in Manila Bay. The Japanese invaded the Philippines the same day they attacked Pearl Harbor. And uh, that was when uh, MacArthur left vowing to return. And, and when he did return in 1944, it was with Uncle Al and his squadron mates who launched the attack. Uncle Al got shot down. And uh, if, if you want a colorful story, I'll give you that story about the shoot down. Because he was, you want, want to hear it? Yep. Okay, good. The dive bomber that he was flying was a, was a two-seater tandem aircraft, single engine, pilot in the front, rear-facing gunner in the back. The gunner was a, a, a wisecracking New York kid. And the pilot, Uncle Al, as I said, was from Pilahatchee, Mississippi. So they went into their dive and they got hit and their diving flaps jammed. So when they pulled out of the dive, uh, the plane virtually stood still in the air. It would barely fly. There was so much drag. It was getting shot to pieces and he ditched it in the bay. And the ditching, Uncle Al got knocked out. Next thing he knew, he was being pulled out of the cockpit as the plane was sinking by his, by, by his gunner in the back seat. When he could gain his footing, the, the gunner, in typical New York fashion, snapped to attention, in the middle of this air-sea battle, saluted Uncle Al and said, shall I inflate the life raft, sir, as the water was coming up to their chins. So they got in the life raft, and then it was a race between the Japanese who wanted to capture the down flyers and the remnants of the Filipino army fighting a guerrilla war in the Philippines that they had been since the invasion in 1941, coming out in, in, in fast fishing boats from the Bataan Peninsula to rescued them, and the guerrillas won the race, saved Uncle Al into the jungles, made him a major in the, in the Philippine army. He was the first American they'd seen coming back. He led a, a number of raids on the Japanese until he could organize a return to the fleet, at, at which point he had acquired a few jungle diseases by eating monkey meat and whatnot, so he was shipped back to the States. Met my aunt. On the way out of the Philippines, I thought I'd stop at the uh, VA, Philippine VA in Manila, and found out that uh, there was a fellow there who ran the guerrilla branch. They were very proud of their guerrilla fighters who resisted the, the Japanese. So Colonel Diacampo was a guerrilla fighter. I met with him and I asked him if he by any chance had heard about Uncle Al and his gunner. He initially said no. Then I mentioned something about Uncle Al playing a guitar, or he mentioned something about it. I said, it was a two-man crew, and he kind of lit up and said, I remember a two-man crew we rescued. And the pilot, he was from some South State, and he played guitar. And the, the, uh, the gunner, he, was a, he, was, he talked a lot. And so I said, that was, that was Uncle Al. We pressed on, Dan. We pressed on shooting the story, and we're shooting 
a walking shot just for cover footage in the story where he and I are walking the cameras at some distance. We still have the microphones on. And he said, you know something? I remember a song your uncle used to sing. And he started singing this old country and Western tune. I said, wait a minute. Let me call my mother because I want to verify that this will really tell the story. And so I I called my mother who was living in East Hampton at the time. I'm not thinking it was 2.30 in the morning when I called. So I woke her up and I said, said, "Uh, Mom, I've got a Colonel Diacampo here in Manila and he wants to sing a song to you. So he sang the song and she said, that was your Uncle Al's favorite song, which verified the story that I had actually found the man who had rescued Uncle Al. Not something. Way back then. So it was remarkable. That, and that story, by the way, got much more attention uh, from the public out there, from my viewers, than, than the multi-part series on the military operations. What was the other, you said there were two stories you wanted to talk well, about? Yeah, my, my dad was a B-17 bomber pilot. He was, uh, he, was, he was shot down on his fifth mission, was on a mission to bomb Vienna. They got hit, suffered battle damage. The coal crew parachuted out over Yugoslavia and were luckily picked up by Tito's partisans who spirited them out of the country. It was a, a two-week hair-raising escape from behind enemy lines. It was German-occupied. So, And it was always a story that he would tell us about his getting shot down and, and escaping and going back to fly 25 more missions. But I don't know, somewhere in the 80s, I think, there was a, a B-17 that had been restored, which was the plane my father flew. and was flown around uh, the Statue of Liberty on the 4th of July. And my co-anchor, Pat Harper, at the time, uh, we had a little video of it at the end of the broadcast. And my co-anchor said, boy, that's a beautiful airplane. And I said, yeah, it, it is a beautiful airplane. I've always loved that plane. My father flew one in the Second World War. When I got off the air, and got up to my office, the phone was ringing. And it was a fellow named Joe Couric, who lived in Brooklyn. And he said, Chuck, I've often wondered if you were related to the Chuck Scarborough I flew with, and we shot down with over Yugoslavia. Your father. Yeah, yeah. And he he was a crew member on that, that mission. And he was the key crew member because he was, his parents were Polish. And he could speak the Slavic languages, so they were able to communicate when the men landed on the ground. They actually they had an 11th man on that mission, a combat photographer. So they had, had photos. He had all these photos of my dad behind enemy lines, my dad with a machine gun toting partisan woman, their escape by truck and by boat, all of that documented. Wow. I, I did a story on that. I arranged a reunion between the two men, and it was a remarkable story that once again was, was got a lot of favorable reaction. It seems like uh, the longer you're a news anchor, the more likely it winds up being part of your family. Yes, yes. There is that advantage that you can tell family stories on a broad canvas. <laughs> That's true. Of, of all the stories that you, you've covered all these years, what, what stands out for you as the most remarkable? Well, there was one in, in a category all by itself, Dan. That's 9-11. Yeah. That story changed the world. That story was, was a story that stands in its own category, and it, the world tilted on its axis that day and has not righted itself yet. We're still dealing with the repercussions of 9-11, but it was such a, a comprehensive story, so awful, and took so much of our time. Uh, I was home in Connecticut, Dan. Uh, my, my brother's news photographer, my sister-in-law, called and said a plane is just 
get the World Trade Center. And Jeff has been dispatched down there. And I, my first thought when I woke up in the morning was that this had to be some private pilot who got lost in bad weather and inadvertently hit the side of the, the building. So I went to the window and looked out and here was this crystal clear autumnal day, which was very perplexing. And as I was getting ready to go into the office to cover that story, the second plane hit. And then I knew that we were under attack. The city was under attack. Our nation was under attack. And the events of 9-11 were just all consuming from that moment on. We were on the air for a week straight covering that, living in the middle of that story. The, the nearly fruitless rescue effort to try to find survivors, there were precious few. And then the political repercussions that followed year after year as, the, as we went out to avenge the, uh, the attack and to try to prevent another one from happening. That story will stand in its own category forever. Um, well, that, that morning you were at home. Mm -hmm. Did you get down to the site or get back to your office? I got to my office. It was hard uh, because part of the protocol uh, in an attack we discovered was that the, uh, the city immediately sealed off all entrances and exits. The idea being that if there are any bad guys on Manhattan, in Manhattan, we wanted to keep them there. And if there are any bad operatives outside of Manhattan, we didn't want them getting in. So I had to find a way to persuade a friendly police officer that my duty was to get on the air and, and inform my audience about what was going on as best I could. And that just as his duty was to guard the bridge, my duty was to get to 30 Rock. And, uh, and he let me through. Thank goodness. So I got there. Uh, by then, we'd been, the building had been evacuated because Rockefeller Center was considered perhaps the next target. We didn't know what was going on that day. We didn't know how extensive the attack was going to be. And if, if, there are, if there's one more iconic place in Manhattan besides the World Trade Center, there are two, well, two more, the Empire State Building uh, right. and Rockefeller Center, of course. Those two were prime targets. And those two buildings were evacuated except for the news operation. Now, you, you mentioned a little while ago that we're still following the repercussions of this. Yes. That affected, in, in your mind, what is thought of as news compared to how it was when you first began? Well, I, I think certainly we've poured tons of resources into covering the war on terror. And what's changed, Dan, over the years mainly has been, been technology that's revolutionized us. We went from, when I first started, we were using 60 millimeter color reversal film yep. with a little mag stripe down the side for sound. And then we, we graduated to videotape. But the big transition that really changed what we do and changed the environment in which we work was the digital revolution and computers came along. And we went from linear editing to nonlinear editing. That's a little bit complex, I guess, but, but the, we, can, we can edit with much more speed now because of the digital revolution. Um, we, can, we can cover the world much more easily. We can go live from anywhere very quickly. It's accelerated what we do in a, a dramatic way. At the same time, it brought us the internet and it brought us social media and it brought us a ton of competition. Suddenly we're all swimming in this much larger sea of information out there, this 24 seven and relentless and of questionable reliability. So we're having to compete with, with, with many more sources of information 
and we're having to, to defend the brand like we have never had to defend it before to try to, to be a source of information people trust because there's so many bad ones. There's so much uh, that isn't trust that doesn't work. No, right. I mean, yes, it, it's, it's, it's a minefield out there. It's uh, that the, the, the internet has, been, has done wonderful things for us. It's done amazing things for many facets in our lives, made our lives much more interesting and much easier, made us, let us communicate in many ways that we couldn't communicate before, stay in touch with friends, uh, do these Zoom calls that we're doing right now with you. But it also has opened the door to anybody publishing anything with a possible global audience. And that's, that's where we're having, you know, we're having to wrestle with that in many ways right now. Yeah, I, um, I, I read uh, yesterday that the uh, Republican uh, leader of East Hampton uh, said that uh, he was talking about the uh, election and he said, well, now we know there's been all this fraud. The real question is what can be done about it? And it just struck me how what passes for news, being in the media myself, mm-hmm. and they're going back as even farther than you, sir, <laughs> is how it's changed in, in so many ways that make it much more difficult to be trusted. It does, yeah. And we're, we're all, um, yeah, we're all, and also we become much more divided, as you know. I mean, we, we, we're treated in these, these different political camps. So we are more skeptical, I think, as uh, I'm talking about a viewing audience, more skeptical of what we're seeing because we are subjected to all kinds of, of unreliable information. Or we believe more of what we see. We it's believe not- more of what we see, but it isn't true. Oh, That's the well, other side. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yes, I think certainly there so are. So we can have somebody say something like that, which is not true, as if it were. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the rub, that there's a lot of information that looks awfully reliable. It has the gloss of authenticity, but it may not be. Again, that's why we have to be, as viewers, careful about what sources we get from which we get our information, try to find the most reliable I also think that it's been it's not helpful that we we can retreat into ideological camps and balkanize our viewing. We can, if you if you're a uh, you know a, a liberal, you you watch MSNBC and you get a, a lot of a nice little feedback loop. All your your prejudices and all of your views on the world are, are reinforced, and you don't hear another view. And likewise, if you're a conservative, you watch Fox News. The same thing happens. So, I, I think. As viewers, we do ourselves a disservice by kind of, kind of parking ourselves in front of something that, that reinforces all of our ideas and refusing to expose ourselves to opposing points of view. Let's talk about something else. Um, you live on a, a peninsula that next to uh, Lake Agawam in Southampton, mm-hmm. and uh, it has become polluted over time. I understand you were spearheading the attempts to fix it. And I wanted to ask you about that. Well, yes, uh, there, Lake Agawam is a, a uh, known as the Jewel of Southampton. It was actually actually formed by glacial ice melt during the Ice Age and was a relatively pristine body of water, freshwater, once it closed off from the ocean. But over nearly four centuries of human habitation, it has become polluted. And it's become polluted primarily because of septic systems and fertilizers, pesticides, mainly because of the continuing 
buildup of population of houses around the area. And uh, so now with the influx of all those, uh, those chemicals that get in, the nitrogen, the phosphorus, and things that feed blue-green algae, the lake becomes routinely covered with blue-green algae. It's very dangerous stuff and gives off cyanotoxins. So we decided, uh, a group of us around the lake, watching it deteriorate, decided summer before last to form the uh, conservancy, similar to the Central Park Conservancy, called the Lake Agawam Conservancy, which was to initiate a public-private partnership to try to do something to bring the lake back to the point where the public could use it recreationally. It's worked out really well so far. We've done a lot of things to try to resuscitate the lake. When we first started, I thought it was that the, the issue with the lake was primarily caused by homes around the lake and that we had to fix it. And I was stunned to learn, Dan, that it wasn't. The problem is throughout the entire watershed, a vast area that goes north of Sunrise Highway, thousands and thousands of homes, all with septic systems. And those septic systems generate when they decompose. They release nitrogen and phosphorus into the groundwater that makes its way into the lake. The groundwater also is what we drink. So it turned out that we were addressing a problem that was really community-wide. And if you want to expand it, it's island-wide because we get all of our drinking water out of the groundwater. How did you move it along? How did you attack the situation? Well, we, uh, first of all, we, ha- we got a scientific advisor and we asked that precise question, what do we have to do? So there are a number of things we have done and that can be done to uh, rectify the lake and, and, to, and to improve the quality of the groundwater. You have to attack the septic systems and you'll accomplish both. You have to cut off the inputs into the lake and that is to upgrade the septics. There are new septic systems now that will trap the stuff and not let the nitrogen phosphorus uh, release into the groundwater. They're somewhat magical, but, and there are subsidies to have them done too. You get them put in fairly cheaply. Um, the other part, of course, is the fertilizers and the runoff. And, and those, uh, we want to upgrade all the landscaping practices, the best practices to avoid that. In the meantime, because there's a, a big plume of this stuff under the earth right now that will probably take 20 years to wash out. So how do you stop it from getting into the lake? We clean up, try to clean up what's in the lake and you try to block it. There's something called a permeable reactive barrier. The Conservancy funded the initial study for that, which can actually intercept the groundwater and remove the nitrogen from the groundwater so it doesn't get into the lake. You can dredge the lake, which we are studying, because a lot of the phosphorus lives in the sediment at the bottom of the lake. As it fluxes, uh, it releases the phosphorus into the water that feeds the blue-green algae. Uh, We have harvested lily pads. We have put in 42 bubblers to try to oxygenate the water, keep it from becoming hypoxic, and to keep the water moving, keep it from stagnating. The the lily pads, getting them out, also improves water flow and takes biomass out of the lake. And we build a berm at the bottom of the lake, so it's it's, it's a sort of a rain garden that intercepts overflow from from the rainstorms coming from uh, the road in the area that will intercept that. If you go drive past the southern end of Lake Agawam, you'll see this, this, this garden along the side, these plantings uh, right on the lakeshore, on the, uh, the bulkhead there. And those are specifically designed and the landscaping is specifically shaped to intercept the runoff. So those are the things we've done so far. We've had a lot of help from, uh, from the town trustees. They're, they've been very good about it. The village government's been very good about it. The mayor and the trustees were, were working 
hand-in-hand uh, hand with all of them, and the county as well, and the state. Uh, everybody is pitching in to try to solve these, these problems with the lake. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was You've written three novels, and the most recent one was made into a film mm -hmm. called Aftershock, and it's uh, about an earthquake hitting the city of New York. Yes, it was. This was a, a, a fiction, but not not entirely improbable, Dan. I I hate to rattle you, but <laughs> it might happen. Uh, I would. I had done a story. I guess it was back in the mid '80s on an earthquake in Armenia. That was devastating, and it was it wasn't it was a six and change on the Richter scale then, but because of the structures in that particular area of Armenia, they were unreinforced masonry. They collapsed, and that would killed something like thirty thousand people. So that triggered a whole bunch of of scientific testimony about how vulnerable structures were in the United States, and particularly in New York. So we did this reporting on the air about. New York's vulnerability to earthquakes. We had people from the Lamont Doherty Laboratories, specialists and scientists testifying, and we had a Stony Brook professor, I can't remember his name right now, but he was, he gave me one of the best quotes for my TV series on this thing. I said, what's the worst case scenario? Because there are fault lines that go right through the island of Manhattan. There's one at 125th Street. There are fault lines that go right through the, the Midtown Tunnel. He said, worst case scenario is the subways flooding from ruptured water mains gas fires erupting from shattered gas lines all over the island of Manhattan, the tunnels snapping like glass tubes, and a nuclear effluent floating down the Hudson River from the Indian Point nuclear power plant. Now, there's a tough, there's a tough soundbite. Having heard all that and having seen the, uh, the scary series on TV that I did on New York's vulnerability to earthquakes, and you should know, Dan, I repeat, that New York is not a seismically dead area. We do have earthquakes here. We just haven't had the big one yet. I think we had, a, had one out here about a week ago. Yeah, right. It happens. Little tremors. But uh, anyway, what happened was the editor of one of my earlier books said, that looks like a disaster novel to me. Write it. <laughs> oh, so it was called Aftershock. And yes, and it became a CBS miniseries, of all things. And, uh, I was competing against myself three nights. <laughs> that must have been that must have been something. Mm -hmm. Well, I uh, I think we've wound up our time. Maybe we should do this more often. Maybe we'll do it again later in the year. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking with you. Always, um, I, I enjoyed it immensely, and that you're you're a wonderful asset out there in the East End of Long Island. Well, thanks for coming, Chuck Scarborough, uh, our longtime NBC newsman. And uh, we've been talking with him about uh, World War II and various airplanes and lakes and uh, disasters. Thanks for coming. You bet. Thanks, Dan. Bye.